Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bowling. Our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter. Jesus is speaking. This is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount from last week. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, its prophets, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not 
enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Our reading from Matthew this week, as I say, continues the Sermon on the Mount, picking up right after the listing of the blessings from last week. Jesus has been speaking to his own core disciples, but other people were listening in. And this, you know, there's a major difference between the people who just listened to Jesus and the disciples. Those who listened to Jesus, they heard his sermon, and then they went and they had lunch or supper. But those who were disciples, they listened to a sermon, and then they had their lunch or supper with Jesus. And they continued to follow Jesus daily. For the next three years, they walked with him up and down the country. They followed him. They watched him. They learned from him. They saw what he did on a daily basis And they began to take that rhythm of life that he taught them, those attitudes of looking at life, the mindset of imitating Jesus, they took that into their hearts, into their daily routines, and into their manner of speaking. It's kind of what we need to do today if we're going to be true disciples of Jesus. We have to spend a lot more time with them. Now, many of the people who listened to, the, to Jesus that day undoubtedly said, boy, the rabbi taught us a good sermon today. And you know, three years later, they cheered when he rode a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They had become great fans of Jesus. But on Good Friday, after Jesus had been arrested, many of those same people, when asked what should happen to him after his arrest, they shouted, Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. The fans were one thing. The disciples were different. A disciple is very different from a fan. Disciples in those days were more than students, for the disciples walked with him and hoped to imitate him. And although most of the disciples ran for cover like scared rabbits when Jesus was arrested... They did gather back together on Sunday in that same upper room where they'd shared his last supper. And soon they were preaching all over the world about the resurrection and the teachings of Jesus. So the first question for today is, are you a fan or are you a disciple? Do you come in and listen to the sermon and the readings and go home and that's it? Or are you actually spending time with Jesus throughout the week? But you know the resurrection and such, that was many months ahead. On this particular day, Jesus was sitting on a mountainside near Galilee, and he was teaching his disciples. He told them of the blessings in the kingdom of heaven, the way that everything was turned upside down by his teachings. And then he told them this. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, then how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, in your bulletin today, you may have noticed this very strange thing that we did. We gave you some salt packets, didn't we? Now, if you want to, you can carefully open one and take a look at salt. You know, 
For decades, we've heard that so-and-so was a was real salt-of-the-earth person. But what does that really mean? What does that particular metaphor mean? To understand, we have to go back in time, we have to go back through the ages to the time of Jesus and understand much more about salt and its uses and its value, particularly at the time Jesus spoke to us. Today, we know that salt is a really, really cheap food additive. Even after inflation, it's super cheap. I went on to walmart.com, and I found that a pound and a half, 26 ounces, is 57 cents. Now, I want you to compare that to gold, which sells for about 18.70 an ounce as of Friday. $1,870 an ounce or roughly $28,000 per pound, or if you want to think about it, if you put it into that salt, that salt canister there, it would be worth $42,000. And even bottled water costs more than salt does. But back in ancient times, salt was very expensive. In the Middle Ages, every year, there was a caravan that would form on the north coast of Africa. It would have camels and mules and horses, and they would load it down with gold, as much gold as those animals could carry, allowing for some food and water for the journey. And then they would walk down, clear to Timbuktu, which is a real place in the, in the middle of the de- Sahara Desert. And when they got to Timbuktu, they would exchange that gold that they had carried down there for an equal weight of salt. Salt used to be worth its weight in gold. I want you to imagine buying that Morton salt canister and paying $42,000 for it. That's what they had to do back then. Salt was so valuable for its weight that Roman soldiers were paid their salary in salt. In fact, that's where the word salary comes from. It comes from their salt payment. It was easy to carry, it was really valuable, and it was easily traded. That's where the word salary comes from. Now today, you know, most of our salt is mined by heavy equipment, and then it's shipped by train or truck. It either comes from a deep mine or it comes from these salt flats like out in Utah. But back in Jesus' day, salt had to be evaporated from seawater or the water of the Dead Sea. And that either meant boiling the water, which took valuable wood, or letting it evaporate in ponds and for days and then carefully scraping the salt off the bottom of the ponds. And then that salt had to be transported on donkey back, all of which made salt very costly. There's some folks that are making salt even today by the, using the old method. But why do we worry so much about salt? Doesn't salt kill us if we have too much of it? Why don't we just get rid of it? Well, if you've ever raised cattle or sheep, you know that salt's absolutely vital for life. Farmers buy large salt blocks for their animals to lick. And wild plant-eating animals, they find salty rocks and they go lick at it. Those salt licks, many people have settled around salt licks over the centuries. Meat-eating animals usually get enough salt from the blood of their prey, as do people who eat meat-heavy diets. But everyone needs salt to live. Salt gives life. Of course, too much salt does kill. 
which is why your doctor told you to cut back on your salt. Our cheap salt may kill us through raising our blood pressure. But you know, salt also preserves for the very same reason, because that just as too much salt will kill us, too much salt kills bacteria, and they're much smaller. And that's why before canning, before canning was invented 200 years ago, the favorite way to preserve food was to salt the meat or store the food in salty brine fluid, which gave us sauerkraut and kimchi and salt-cured hams and salt beef. Salt, you see, preserves good stuff from decay. Too much salt can also kill growing plants. And that's why in ancient times, in Judges 9.45, a, a man named Abimelech scattered salt over the defeated town of Shechem to keep the town from being able to rebuild soon because their soil would no longer grow plants. And the, ver- the Romans did the very same thing when they defeated their longtime enemy Carthage. They sowed salt in all the fields around the town so that the town would be uninhabited. Salt was so valuable and is such a preservative and lasts so long that the covenant that God made in Numbers 18 with Israel and the covenant with the house of David in 2 Chronicles 13 are both described as covenants of salt, permanent covenants. Even today in some marriage ceremonies, salt is poured from two containers into one to demonstrate the permanence And the value of the salt was so high in Leviticus 2 that the grain offerings that were required at the temple had to have salt in them for seasoning. Now more recently, just a little more recently, I read an interview with the head of Tyson Foods. The people who make almost all the chicken patties that the fast food companies use. And what he said was that when they're developing a new chicken patty, they experiment with different levels of salt. They have to get the level of salt right. They may try 11 different levels of salt and do taste tests and decide which one is right. And only then do they add the extra spices to the patty. The salt is the most important when it comes to the taste. And those of you who are cooks, you know you've got to get the salt level right. So what does this mean when Jesus told disciples, you are the salt of the earth? He was telling them and us, that his disciples, his followers, are very valuable. At $28,000 a pound, the, the value of gold, how valuable are you? You can do the math if you want to. Hundreds, hundreds, you're up, in, you're up to hundreds of thousands of dollars worth. The disciples are very valuable, and they bring life. Salt of the earth brings life. They can preserve good things. Just as too much salt packed together isn't good, the disciples probably shouldn't be clustering together, but should spread out and bring a seasoning to the world around them. He was saying, Jesus was saying, that a few disciples here, a few disciples there could change the world around them from being a bland, rotting place to becoming an exciting, wonderful place where the rottenness was gone. And we should do the same. We shouldn't be upset when we work and we're not surrounded by other strong followers of Jesus. But instead, we should understand that our role is to season the world around us. So if you work in a place where there are only a couple of mature Christians, that's good. 
season that workplace with your goodness like a sprinkling of salt on bland potatoes. Do you find yourself the only Christian at the football game? That's fine. Let you be the one who leads the prayers when someone's hurt on the field. Are you lonely for other Christian company? Come back to church every Sunday to have your saltiness refreshed. Wherever you go, Christian, you're to be that sprinkling of good taste, of life, that preserver of all that's good. You sprinkle around this magic dust, if you will, this, the goodness of Christ. And remember, you are as valuable as gold. But Jesus gives us a warning. He said, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So how can salt lose its saltiness? Well, today, you know, we have pure or almost pure salt, white salt. But back in the ancient times, the salt, the sodium chloride, was just a major component of a small lump which had other minerals, like the Himalayan pink rock salt of today. The salt may have been pink or yellow or gray, and if the lump was exposed, these are all salt, by the way, if the lump was exposed to moisture or humidity, the sodium chloride would gradually dissolve and disappear while the remaining minerals would stay behind. In effect, the lump would have lost its saltiness. The impurities would have taken over, destroying the good flavor of the salt lump. So hold on to your saltiness. Hold on to your goodness, your life-giving qualities, your desire to preserve all that's good. For if you lose that goodness, then you might as well be thrown out. Don't let the impurities of the world wash away your good flavor. And there's a lot of impurities out there, aren't there? That's why we come back together to renew our saltiness. And now you know why the old author spoke of good, solid Christian families as salt of the earth. In their communities, they brought life and they preserved the good ways. They were valuable. They brought joy and spice to a dull, bland world that was rotting. So I want you to become a human salt shaker. Think about it. Shake your salt everywhere. Sprinkle your saltiness everywhere you go. This, this guy here even dressed up the part. Now, Jesus also spoke in this sermon of lights. Now, I want to ask you, who is the light of the world? I I kind of thought you'd say that. Jesus once again shows his faith in us because he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The world around us has great darkness, but we are the light of the world according to Jesus. Now, you've felt that darkness out there, and you may have experienced it directly. There are many people who seem to live to put down others, to abuse others, to lead them down into the darkness of the lives that they live. There are other dark traps in the world. There are chemicals. There's other gods. There's the dead end, the dead ends to life. It's so easy to find those dark traps that lead us to find ourselves sitting alone in a room 
in the dark, hopeless, wondering if there's any point to this life. There are so many ways to darkness and loneliness. But Jesus told his disciples that we are the light of the world. For a light gives hope. A light shows us the way. A light helps us to escape the swamps of despair and hopelessness and loneliness. Lights help us out of the dark closets of the world. It's us, the disciples and the followers of Jesus, who are the light of the world. If the world's going to change for the better, it won't be through the efforts of the lost. If the world's to improve, it will not be through the efforts of people who are stuck in the dark rooms themselves. It will be through the followers of Jesus who are the lights of the world. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it's written, What no eye has seen, what no ears heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Folks, positive change in the world will only come about as we who know Jesus stand up and show our goodness and light and glorify our Father in heaven and walk forward glowing with that light ourselves. Now, you may not feel like you're a very bright light. People may even have called you a a dim bulb. But here's an experiment. I want you to go to your basement. I want you to turn out all the lights, and I want you to sit there in the darkness for 10 minutes while your eyes adjust. And then I want you to strike a match right in front of your face and see how bright that light is in the darkness. And and remember that, that a match light is something that we can barely see on a sunny day. It's been said that a single candle flame can be seen for miles on a moonless night. The darker our surroundings you see, the brighter our dim light becomes. And our lights are not dim. We have the glory of Christ glowing in us. Especially when we all burn brightly together in a community. And finally, Jesus tells us that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And here's how he did this. We know that Jesus was perfect, never making a mistake. He never had a sin. He was here as a human, having a body like us. And so people look at him and they wonder, how could a mere human be perfect? For we are never perfect, are we? And so we have two options when we look at Jesus. First of all, we can just say, well, he was just a lot better than us. He was a good human. But then we have to ask ourselves why we aren't able to be as perfect as Jesus. Why was he so much better than we are? Why was he able to do everything the law requires of us? We can't even follow a law we made up for ourselves. If you set an ethical standard for yourself, I can guarantee that within a day or so, you're going to break that ethical standard. It's an ethical system. When we develop ourselves, we can't even follow that, let alone the law given by God to Moses. We have to admit 
that we are less than Jesus and he deserves to be followed. Or the second way we can do is we can look at Jesus and say he cheated on the perfection because he was God walking on the earth. Of course Jesus could be perfect. He was God. And therefore he could do everything that the law requires. And then he has us. Because either way, we have to admit that Jesus is so much better than us or is God himself and therefore either way he's worthy of our devotion and loyalty and we should be following him. He's fulfilled the purpose of the law which was to demonstrate to us that we can't follow the law but he could. It was to go back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent said to Eve, if you eat this apple you'll be just like God. Jesus was to prove the serpent wrong, and he crushed the serpent under his foot. And isn't that belief that we are like God, the greatest danger to our souls, that we would see ourselves as perfect or even better than other people, little gods walking upon the earth. Of all the evils which attempt to destroy our souls, Our arrogant view of ourselves as all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfect is the most effective and straightest road to destruction. And we do that every day, don't we? We think about someone else, we're better than them. We're almost perfect in that way. Jesus fulfilled the law by becoming the only human to be perfect. And yes, he had the help of being God walking on earth. So how do we properly follow Jesus? And what does it take? We have to stand up and we have to do good. We have to sprinkle our salty goodness around like magic dust. Speak words that fall on people and lift them up and give them life. Preserve the good things through our actions, and through our speech. Show people the goodness that comes from following Jesus. Spread that magic dust around, that salt. Lift your lights to the world. But you know, we can't do this by hiding in our homes. We have to meet people, especially those who don't know Jesus. And if you can't leave your home because of health issues, then start making phone calls. Just last week, we heard where a woman who's in the assisted living home is making phone calls to another woman and has brought joy to her life. You can make phone calls, and you can show your light, and you can sprinkle your salty goodness to everyone you meet, especially at the shops and at the stores and in your work and at school. Sprinkle your salt and show your light. And you'll be making a difference in the world. And carry those salt packets with you to remind you to spread your salt around. And you can tell your friends why you have a salt packet with you in your pocket or in your purse. And that's going to start an interesting conversation, isn't it?
Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Bowley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.